Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 341, Knight's Adventurer. Let me take you away from all this everyone, transport you to places more exotic where you can let your imagination fly like a bird. I am talking of course of Gravesend. Gravesend is apparently quite a big place now. In 1623 it was still a busy little place, though of course much smaller than now. But there was a bit of a cottage industry, mills, and since it lies in northwest Kent on the south bank of the River Thames, not far from the estuary, there was also a ferry operating there. One of Gravesend's many, many claims to fame is that it is the place where six years earlier a boat had landed for tragic reasons. Rebecca Rolfe, or Pocahontas, on her way back to her native America, died and was put ashore and buried there. Anyway, ferry, that's the thing. There's a ferry, not a ferry across the Mersey, but across the mighty River Thames, a river so mighty that a friend from a land down under, where they have proper rivers, on seeing it for the first time, used the word creek, which was rude. But anyway, it's the early morning of the 18th of February, 1623, and the ferryman is waiting on the north bank for a mark. When up clattered two very fine bearded gentleman, dressed in the very best quality clothing with the most exquisite tailoring. Boatmen notice things like that. It's a well-established fact, my granny told me. The two gentlemen called each other John and Thomas Smith. 
they were an odd pair. As the ferryman pulled away at his hawser, admiring the tailoring, he also happened to notice something odd about their bids. They kept moving across their faces in the most bewildering way until the boatman began to think he'd had one too many last night of his wife's ale. Until then, it clicked. God's bodykins, they were wearing falses. Good golly, you'd have thought with all that beautiful tailoring, they could have brought ones that fitted better. Anyway, he hauled away. Possibly he was called Joe, so he could sing, Haul away, Joe. You shanty singers know what I'm talking about. Until they arrived at Gravesend, and the ferryman hung out a hand for a fee. Well, golly, that caused the right old fuss. The two of the gentlemen turned their backs, messed about in purses, whispered with a blizzard of clinking coins, until one of them, a very attractive man, who looked a lot like St Stephen must have looked, handed over a coin in a rather embarrassed way, and before you could say swounds, they were off, mounting the horses and riding like the devil was at their heels. Joe looked down, and Mary come up. It was a twenty-bob bit, a whole English pound of gold. And it was real. Joe knew, because he gave it a good go with his teeth to check it wasn't soft, lead or something. Well, that was way too much money. And now Joe began to get a bit worried. If that pair were John and Thomas Smith, he was a Dutchman's uncle. She might well have been, actually, but you know what I mean. And they were up to no good, they were, off to fight a duel or something in France. Joe tied up his ferry and went off into Gravesend to tell the local JP all about it. He had no idea who they were. A month later, in Madrid, a man called Simon Digby saw two men with dodgy beers and fine tailoring lurking around outside his uncle's house. Worried, Simon approached them, and in pantomime whispers they demanded to be led to his uncle in the greatest secrecy and with greatest possible dispatch. Simon led them in the back door, thinking maybe this was some espionage stuff going on, and he led them to his uncle's study, whose face, when he saw the pair, was a picture, jaw, hit toe caps, all that head exploded. Gosh, who were these men, wondered Simon. I have really milked this, haven't I? Way too much. Flogged it, really. Anyway, as I'm sure you have guessed by now, these men were not John and Thomas Smith. They were, in fact, Charles, Prince of Wales and heir to the throne of England and Wales, and George Villiers, the Marquis of Buckingham. Well, who the elbow? No wonder Simon's unk, John Digby, the Earl of Bristol, emissary to the Spanish court, rushed out immediately and sent a dispatch to London straight away. I mean, the whole thing is quite remarkable, and I have never tasted a fruitcake even remotely as nutty. How on earth did the pair of them come to be secretly in Madrid? Well, we'll have to go back a bit to explain exactly how, but part of why is probably reasonably obvious. As we heard last time, the 1621 Parliament had been dissolved in January 1622 without the required war subsidies, leaving James's strategy to bring priests in Europe through a marriage and alliance with France in ruins around his spindly little legs. Without the threat of war with England, which of itself wasn't particularly terrifying as far as Spain was concerned, James had no leverage at all to persuade the Spanish to give up the Palatinate and make peace. Other 
than a certain level of toleration for Catholics in England that James was not even close to being able to offer. Nonetheless, James persisted with his strategy. Diplomatic activity from England was at bonkers level. The amp of communication was turned up to 11. And while you can probably sense there's a bit of a level of mockery going on here from the author of the History of England, we might just pause for a while and make the point that at least James was desperate for that most valuable of commodities, peace. And even when trying to threaten war, was very, very reluctant to see that happen. Maybe if folks like James had been in control throughout Europe, maybe all those millions of hapless German and Czechs would not have had to die, not to mention the soldiers from multiple nations. So, you know, he deserves, surely, a lot of credit for that, playing his rather poor hand, no more than a pair of twoses, and trying hard not to lose his. Between 1619 and 1622, James sent ten diplomatic missions to German states alone. From 1621 to 1623 alone, there were also embassies back to London from Bohemia, Denmark, France, the Holy Roman Empire, Muscovy, the Palatinate, Poland, Spain, the Swiss, the Dutch Republic and Venice. And red carpets were laid out for all. But to be honest... Few were fooled by all the ceremony. At one, an army of sugar soldiers were lined up for the pud, provoking mutters that other muskets and pikes were required now. John Digby was dispatched back to Spain in March 1622 to try and get the stalled negotiations about the Spanish marriage back on track. Actually, Digby, the Earl of Bristol, was full of beans and enthusiasm for the prospects of the marriage when he got there, sending a stream of positive reports back home, blown away by the magnificence of the Spanish court, an empire at the peak of its global power, and naively impressed with the fine words and manners of the Spanish hosts. Here is just one example of the kind of things he wrote. I now make no doubt but that the Prince Frederick shall be in entirely restored both to his territory and to his electorate, and this king, merely to gratify his majesty, will make this work. So, in the bag then, as a fat lady giving it her all. The truth was rather south of there, and a few simple reflections might explain why, which are probably summed up by the previous Spanish monarch Philip III, who on his deathbed was reported as saying that he never intended for the marriage to actually take place. Philip IV came to the throne in March 1621, a man with a remarkably long oblong face, which I imagine has no light to shed at all on his historical reputation, though it is worth noting that it's from his reign that historians often map the start of Spain's decline from its dominant position in European politics. Philip acquired a state of affairs to which two important factors had been added which would affect the Spanish match. Firstly, Maximilian of Bavaria had got involved in the imperial conquest of the Palatinate and would in short order conquer the upper Palatinate. His price was to become the prince-elector of the Palatinate to replace poor old Frederick the Winter King and for Ferdinand he was a great candidate. He was as fiercely Catholic and proponent of the Counter-Reformation as you could wish for, 
and his elevation to elector would guarantee a Catholic majority among imperial electors. Maximilian was a competent ruler who would sweep away the feudal rights of the estates in Bavaria and thereby lay the foundations of absolutist rule. For Spain, this made it effectively impossible to contemplate the idea of restoring Frederick to the Palatinate, because it was vanishingly unlikely that they'd able to persuade the Holy Roman Emperor to do so. Secondly, the truce agreed with the Dutch Republic in 1609 with Spain had expired. You might think that this would be a good time to draw a line, reflect that at least they'd managed to hang on to the Spanish Netherlands where the Counter-Reformation was proceeding most satisfactorily and move on. However, it is sometimes difficult to let go, is it not? And so, war was instead to resume and more Spanish bullion, blood and energy will be spent in the lowlands and continue to bleed dry the economy and wealth of Empire's Castilian heartlands. This had an impact on the Palatinate because it lay on the Spanish road. The Spanish road was the complicated route that armies would have to take to get from Spain to fight the Dutch. You might think that taking the overnight ferry from Santander would be better, but there was at that stage a problem that you don't face now when you take the Santander ferry, namely the Dutch Navy, which would try to send them all to Davy Jones's locker. The Spanish would nonetheless risk it, actually, in 1639, with disastrous results. On occasion, there was also the English Navy to consider to boot. So, instead, the armies had to be shipped to Philip's possessions in northern Italy. Then, over the Alps, through the heavily contested Valtellina Pass, and up along the Rhine. You could go via the Tyrol, but that was a long way round. Having an angry Protestant, Frederick, in control of the Palatinate, would make that whole thing impossible. So, good Catholic Maximilian, it must be then. Philip IV had installed his favourite, the Count Duke of Olivares, one of those super famous names in European history. Olivares would remain in power until 1643, when his policies and the inherent standing problems of the Spanish Empire would result in inflation and revolt in Catalonia and Portugal and force him from power. Olivares was determined to maintain Spain's position in European affairs and was convinced they had powerful friends in high places. God is Spanish and fights for our nation these days, he was to remark. Olivares saw the situation clearly though and he made it clear to Philip that his policies contained a fatal conflict. Marriage to the English would commit them to restore the Palatinate to Frederick and therefore they would be together with the King of Great Britain engaged in a war against the Emperor and the Catholic League. A thing which, to hear, will offend your Majesty's godly ears. He was quite right. This from the start made the idea of an alliance with Protestant England almost completely impossible to contemplate without giggling. Nonetheless, the message Digby was picking up from those cheeky Spanish was uniformly positive, and it has to be said that Digby was rather overwhelmed by the magnificence of the court and the assurances that he received. At one stage, he was able to get in front of Philip himself, and he reported back excitedly that there was no need for a long face because he had a commitment from his mouth that, if necessary, Spanish troops, yes, 
would join with the English to remove the imperial forces and restore Frederick by battle. Trouble was, oddly, Olivares resolutely refused to give him that in writing. But no matter, surely a king's word was law. Back at the English court, there was rather more cynicism. The Venetian ambassador regarded Spanish assurances as a narcotic to make the English sleep the more profoundly this winter. And some councillors contrasted the reality of events in the Palatinate with all the positive news from Digby. Some were strongly in favour of the idea of trying to find some iron fists, given all that velvet glove stuff, and hot on the suggestion that the king should take into his pay the troops of the two Protestant mercenary commanders, Count Mansfield and the Duke of Brunswick. James resisted the intention and instead firmly pursued policies designed to sell to the Spanish that the only other lever that he had over their affections was made of good, solid, serviceable material, namely a prospect of Catholic toleration. And he was encouraged to take more energetic and practical action to convince the Spanish that he was in earnest, perversely, by one John Knight, a young Oxford Puritan scholar who preached when discussing the Palatinate that it was lawful for subjects when harassed in religion to take up arms against their sovereign, which very effectively pushed the requisite button on James's personal control panel and led to Knight's immediate imprisonment. As a result, in August, James issued his proclamation Directions Concerning Preachers, which put a list of subjects off the preacher's agenda, including bitter invectives against either Papists or Puritans, and all matters of state. Behind this lay James's fear that anti-Spanish agitation might itself lead to widespread disobedience against the Crown, not just Catholics, as well as sink the idea of a Spanish match if the Spanish didn't believe that he could deliver toleration. Over time, James's fear of Puritanism, their resistance to the Spanish match, and the link in James's mind with public disobedience had a longer-term impact which would bear fruit in Charles's reign. That balance between Puritans and Arminians within the Church of England, a balance that James had carefully maintained, began to shift slowly but perceptibly off-centre, and the ship of state began to veer towards Arminianism. After all, Arminians were strongly supportive of royal authority and governance of the church. So, in 1629, nine out of 24 bishops were now Arminian, or would support Archbishop Lord's later reforms. By the end of James's reign, 12 were and the same trend was discernible at the universities. At the same time, James suspended the penal laws against Catholics and moved to control the press to prevent licences being issued to publish works that might upset Spain. Buckingham boasted to Gondomar that the English prisons were emptied of priests and recusants and filled with zealous ministers for preaching against the match. All of this had the impact of encouraging the Catholics. The Catholic Bishop of Chalcedon was reported to be preaching openly in the Midlands in his full kit, regalia and indeed caboodle. An aristocratic party emerged at court, gloated openly that the tables would soon be turned on the Protestants and achieved some very high-profile conversions, 
particularly dramatic was the conversion of Buckingham's very own mum. All of this had the impact of clamping down on public, anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic polemic and spread a sense of danger through Protestant circles. A later chronicle catalogued the time as when the Romish foxes came out of their holes. But opposition was not entirely suppressed by James's directives. Libels and ballads, for example, complained of Romish drugs and dangerous fig of Spain. This was, in addition, a time of widespread economic distress and even famine. The years 1621 to 1623 in particular were hit by a string of bad harvests. In many places, rural poor, unable to feed themselves, flooded to the towns to try and find relief. There they found many places suffering themselves from a fall in trade and a crisis in particular among the weavers, and therefore unable to cope with this influx of people. In Wales they complained of a failure of the cattle trade and blamed imports from Ireland. Meanwhile, bubonic plague returned with increasing frequency. All of this meant the arrival of what has been termed the last famine in England and Wales. Historians have questioned whether people actually died from this famine and much argument has taken place. It seems clear that the famine was more no localised, mainly in the north of England, but not entirely. There were also famine deaths in Cambridgeshire. However, it is equally clear that yes, many did die for lack of food. The 1620s were in a way the culmination of decades of population growth and pressure on resources. None of this helped the sense of public crisis and panic. But the decade would prove to be the last such major event. Not the end of dearth and economic distress, obviously, but the increasing flexibility in the economy, the ability to transship food and poor relief systems meant that actual famine deaths would not reappear in future periods of harvest failure in England and Wales, even in times of massive conflict such as 1646-9. So it is quite a milestone. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In this atmosphere of religious, political, and economic distress, when James tried to raise money to help his son-in-law in the Palatinate, money came very hard. Charles ordered another benevolence to be raised. Some JPs, like Lord Say and Seal, refused to do so and were imprisoned for their pains. The Earl of Oxford is imprisoned for speaking out against Buckingham's complete dominance of politics and patronage. Murmuring has continued across the country against the Spanish match. But within the confines of James's court, the perspective was different, and we must go to the King's Court at James's favourite house, Tybalt's, in January 1623. And we need to bring Charles into the picture, just 22 years of age still, but as we've heard from the 1621 Parliament, increasingly involved in official business and growing in personal influence. 
Although he'd been raised a Calvinist and was passionately keen to rescue his sister's inheritance in the Palatinate, he had been very much convinced that marriage with Maria Anna of Spain, though interfaith, was the best way to restore the Palatinate to his sister. He was also under the considerable influence of Buckingham, with whom he met frequently, both together with James and on his own. Clarendon, who would be close to him, accordingly recorded in his history that what followed was Buckingham's idea. But in fact, it appears to have been Charles's very own idea, because way back in May 1622, Gondomar had written with astonishment to Philip IV in Spain that the prince has offered to me in strict confidence and secrecy that if upon my arrival back in Spain I should advise him to come and place himself in your majesty's hands at your disposition, he would do it and come to Madrid incognito with two servants. Not only was Charles feeling more self-confident and determined to assert himself, he was also suffering from the most pernicious horrors of romance in multiple forms, the same impulse that brought us Valentine's Day. So this particular infestation had two forms. One was an example given to him by his own dad. James proudly told his lad that he'd gone to Oslo to collect his own bride. He may have neglected to mention that the marriage was fully aggrieved and betrothal taken place by proxy by the time he left, but hey, that's a detail. And then, the more straightforward thing, Charles was convincing himself that he was in love. So, there we are at Tybalt's. Baby Charles, Steenie and dear dad as they called each other touchingly. Charles was increasingly convinced that this thing needed to be heaved over the line, and so on his knees, in front of his dear dad, he sprung his plan, that he should go and fetch his bride, just like dad had done. James, of course, turned to Steeny for advice. Steeny, of course, was looking at the future King of England at this point, but he kept the tone businesslike, not, saying instead that to refuse such a piffling, trifling request might jeopardise his son's love for his father. James shed some tears at this point, but Charles and Buckingham had the bit between their teeth and were remorseless. James called another courtier for his opinion, one Francis Cottingham. Poor Francis, when told about this, took a while to recover from the shock, and then, to give him his due, he stood up to the plate of professionalism and said that such a daft move would jeopardise years of careful diplomacy and deliver the prince as a hostage, subject to whatever demands the Spanish cared to inflict. He was roundly and comprehensively ignored and James gave in. On February the 17th, then, when James set out for Royston and his beloved hunting, John and Thomas, false beards suitably attached, stayed behind and set off to pay the ferryman in Gravesend, thence to Rochester. They called their enterprise the Journey of the Knights of Adventure, dripping with romance of the finest novels. At Rochester, they were almost rumbled when they happened to meet the imperial ambassador, would you believe, and his train on the very road and had to leap over a hedge to avoid being seen. At Canterbury, the mayor tried to arrest the two dodgy beards and Buckingham had to come clean about who they were in strictest confidence, gov. Thence to Dover, 
where they were joined by Cottingham, would you believe, who, despite having said the whole thing was potty, was ordered to go and help them. Across the channel with associated royal vomiting, and so to Paris. There they managed to sneak into the court where Louis XIII and Queen Anne were having a public supper, and gawped along with the crowd. This was followed by a night at the ballet, and then off at four in the morning, riding through France with a thousand pounds in gold in their pockets. Wizard wheeze, and wizard prey for a highwayman, but fortunately they reached the Spanish borders intact, thence to Madrid, and Simon Digby's astonishment. By golly! Back at home, meanwhile, the news was out. Privy councillors besieged James, who was forced to admit that yes, it was true, but hey, it's okay, the buck's with him. Slowly the news spread over the next few days, weeks and months, and frankly, many decided that this was the perfect time to panic. At one level, prayers were held for the prince's safety. Others feared that Charles had simply delivered himself into the hands of his enemies, and if a marriage was to take place, it would be at an ever higher cost. God have mercy on us, for we are in a deplorable condition, one wrote to a cousin. Poems reflected the general sense of worry about what would happen if the marriage did in fact go ahead. True religions buried in the dust, the Pope's bull's breath and crosses be adorned. Simon Dews wrote of a dream sent to him, to arm myself for preparation against worse times. Stories from Madrid filtered back. It was said that one of Charles's servants had died there and had been ceaselessly demanded to convert before meeting his maker, and when he refused, was denied burial. Buckingham began to be the focus of blame, accused of having used his best tricks with Catholics to bring our prince to Spain. Hispaniophobia rose on the streets of London. The Spanish ambassador protested that he was besieged and dares scarce to go abroad. A highwayman went to the gallows as a folk hero when he proclaimed to the watching crowd that hatred of the Spanish match had driven him to rob a Spanish courtier, rather than the more obvious but clearly unworthy suspicion that he just wanted to nick a few quid. In Spain, back in March, the rumour began to get out also that the Prince of England was in Madrid. He was where? Olivares could be heard to thunder. Digby had let Gondomar know, in fact, Gondomar was in Madrid at the time, not London, and a secret meeting was held in a carriage with Buckingham, Digby and the Prince. There were all manner of skullduggeries going on. The Spanish Council of State met and looked at each other with some astonishment. Since this event has no parallel in history, it was hard to know how to deal with it, ran the record of the meeting. Well, the Spanish decided they had better put their best foot forward. But for a while, the Duggaries continued to be sculled. Buckingham and Charles took a casual carriage ride around a royal palace grounds and just happened upon Philip, walking along. Good Lord, what a spooky coincidence. King of Spain picked him up and went for a secret couple of hours chat. On the 17th of March, it was finally publicly admitted that the Prince of England was indeed in the building. The rumours were all true, and Charles and Buckingham made a public entrance into Madrid in grand fashion. Most people assumed 
there must be some special reason why Charles had decided to come in person, and they strongly suspected the reason was that Charles had resolved to convert to Catholicism. It surely had to be something dramatic. The Pope had been contacted straight away, and he made that assumption. Digby, meanwhile, was due to be rather sidelined by their arrival since Buckingham and Charles would take the negotiation off his hands. But even he was mystified as to why. And after chatting with Gondomar, he assumed the same thing. Charles had not, in fact, decided to convert as it happens, and when Digby made the suggestion to him, he was horrified at the very thought. Charles and Buckingham wrote home to their dear dad in a steady stream, and James wrote back, My sweet boys and dear adventurous knights, worthy to be put in a new romance. So, good to see someone's keeping their feet firmly on the ground then. James also wrote kindly and constantly to Buckingham's family, Kate Buckingham and his sister Lady Denby, keeping them informed too. Charles wrote of his exciting experiences and he was mightily impressed by what he saw of the magnificent, sumptuous Spanish court. The Spanish staged a mock battle for his entertainment and he dined in elaborate court style. The Spanish court was very formal and Charles loved that as he would love such formality all his life. He toured around Madrid and indulged his love of art. He bought two Titians and was painted by Belasquez. At the start, at least, he was having a hoot. What, you might ask, of the bride-to-be, Maria Anna? Maria was 17 now, and it has to be said that if the Pope was unenthusiastic about heretics, Maria would be his greatest supporter. She was not keen on the idea of marriage, not keen at all, and started off by announcing she'd rather retire to a nunnery. Maybe, just maybe, if the two of them had met, Charles would have been able to convince her. Who knows? but formal protocol kept them very much apart, although finally a sort of encounter was contrived. Maria was to walk in a particular garden, while Charles and Buckingham were strategically located in the palace at a suitable window so they could see her. Maria refused to even look in their direction. But Charles was smitten, and Buckingham reported to dear dad, I think there is not a sweeter creature in the world. Baby Charles himself is so touched to the heart that he confesses all he ever yet saw is nothing to her, and swears that if he cannot have her, there shall be blows. Well, that's all nice then. But in terms of the business end of this, well, things were going less satisfactorily, and Buckingham grew increasingly impatient as the weeks passed by without progress. Papal dispensations were required for the match to happen, and when they arrived, they were tough. They were partly tough, because Olivares, the little tinker, had secretly written to the Pope, asking him to block a dispensation in the hope that Charles would convert in desperation. Forewarned that the Spanish were playing out of the back of their hands, the terms were indeed toughened. So, when they arrived, there was a sharp intake of breath accompanied by much tooth-sucking. The Infanta was to educate her children in the Catholic faith until they were 12, was to have a chapel in London open to all, the recusancy laws were to be repealed and Catholics were to have formal toleration, and the Privy Council were to swear to abide by any agreement that Charles made in Madrid. Meanwhile, discussions about the Palatinate went nowhere. 
Olivares made the suggestion that the lands should be made as Maria's dowry, a generous offer since the lands didn't belong to Spain and therefore Charles would have to take an army to go and get them. Fetch, sir, fetch. Things went to and things went fro. Digby confided to Gondomar that James would find it almost impossible to get formal toleration because it would require an act of Parliament and would be absolutely impossible to get by the MPs. Buckingham showed increasing irritation as the months went by and Charles was running out of money anyway. James was desperate to get his son back, but had never thought of anything other than offering some vague promises as far as toleration was concerned. In fact, he became most irritated when reflecting that by repealing recusancy laws, he'd then have to give up £36,000 of back recusancy fines. Even Charles began to get frustrated. In June, he tried desperately to engineer a meeting with Maria Anna, climbing a wall surrounding her garden and advancing towards the object of his passion. Maria shrieked for her virtue and ran off in the other direction, calling for her chaperone, who sternly ordered Charles to leave by her side door. And yet, as high as were the hurdles thrown in his path by the Spanish to stop this impossible match from happening, it seemed Charles would try and climb them. Having made sure impossible offers had been placed in front of Charles, Olivares sat back and smugly waited for the refusal. But darn it all, Charles went and accepted them. He did what? Charles agreed to repeal the accusancy laws within three years. His poor father, meanwhile, was just desperate to have his boys back. I care more match nor nothing, so I may once more have you in my arms again. God grant it, God grant it. Our men, our men, our men. On the 20th of July, 1623, James agreed to Charles's request that his father give him carte blanche to cut any deal he saw fit. James had the entire Privy Council write a blank cheque, well before such things were invented, actually, by getting them to swear that they would abide by any deal agreed. Charles signed the agreement with Spain and wrote home, We are very confident when we see your majesty to give you very good satisfaction for all we have done. All this sounds very incredible. But by this stage, probably even Charles actually had received a gift in the form of second thoughts. The Spanish threw up more objections. The marriage could not possibly happen till later. Maria would have to travel on later. They'd have to agree a betrothal. Charles found out they'd read all his mail, and the big one, Olivares, in an off moment, admitted that the King of Spain would never fight his imperial cousins to release the Palatinate. By August, Charles was as desperate to leave as Buckingham been for a while. Buckingham's only compensation was that in May, James had written to him announcing his promotion to the title of Duke, the first non-royal to be created a Duke since 1553, so almost unique. So, the Duke of Buckingham it now shall be. Now, we need to hop back to Blighty and a sumptuous golden place called Godalming, where Ranulf Flambar, I believe, was once a priest, if you can remember back all the way to Rufus. Anyway, Mr Wyatts was a publican at the local pub and on the evening of the 5th of October he received a party of visitors. Very smart visitors they were too, which he wondered at. Look at that tailoring. Quality. And actually, they were very tight-lipped about who they were and why they were in such a hurry, hard as Wyatt's tried to get them to talk, which made him a bit suspicious. 
and when it came to the bill, there was a bit of a shock, since they paid in Spanish coins, so the value needed to be calculated on weight. And Wyatt was a bit nonplussed that his wife kept kissing the leader of the party, about which there would be words later, and there was an old lady in the pub who grabbed the leader by the hand and absolutely refused to let him go, demanding relentlessly that he promised never to repeat the journey he'd just been on. Eventually the poor man did as he was ordered and finally was able to carry on, and Wyatt's watched the party as they left, thinking, look at the cut of those clothes, exquisite. Anyway, time to find out from the missus what on earth was going on there. Next time but one, it will be revealed to you exactly what was going on and what it all meant, though I guess you might have realised by now. But just in case you are on tenterhooks, strung out like a piece of vellum, then be sure to check in for the next episode. That will be after a guest episode about rights of common with the Open Spaces Society next week. Until then, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.